Please open in your scriptures to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. Our series from Exodus uh, is appropriately entitled, The God Who Makes Himself Known. And we're in the earliest chapters of this story, this true story, and this book in our scriptures where God, the Lord God, is making himself known um, both to Pharaoh and the Egyptians uh, who have Israel in captivity, but also demonstrating his wonders uh, to his chosen people. And now I'll begin reading from Exodus chapter 9. This is God's word. May we give careful attention to it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, and that's the language here, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow... The Lord will do this thing in the land, and the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them. As the Lord had spoken to Moses. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. 
For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant in the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field and all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. There will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased. The rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Thanks be to God for his word. Lord, as we come to your scriptures again and we read here of pestilence, boils, and hailstorms, 
storms of which even the mighty nation of Egypt at that time had never seen. We are both grateful, but also aware of our need for you. That the one who spoke to Pharaoh through Moses and the one who inspired by his spirit Moses to inscripturate these accounts, Lord, is the one who is present with us and with your people everywhere where the name of Christ is named and exalted. And so we pray, Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us minds to understand. Give us a heart that can respond rightly to the words that God speaks. For we were saved for your glory. We pray, Lord, you would renew in us a heart that lives for your fame. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. I was encouraged a few weeks ago, it was a timely encouragement, even on children's ministry Sundays, to address the children directly, although many of them are out there, some may be listening, and to mention them again throughout the sermon. So I think I'll begin again with a familiar story that connects this passage to our lives because we're committed as a pastoral team not only to teach these scriptures, what we trust is faithfully and as Dan mentioned theologically, but also make practical application to our lives. When I was young, like some of you are now kids, my parents read to me a very old nursery rhyme. It was called Jack and the Beanstalk. It's better than the movie depiction of it, written in the 1700s as it was by a British man. It describes the adventures of a young boy who, when given by his mom, who was a widower, their one and only cow, their precious possession to take to market and sell it for some money that they might eat, Jack did a foolish thing, didn't he? He sold the cow for ten magic beans and brought the beans home to his mom. Well, his mom reacted like your mom or my mom would react when you sell your only cow for ten magic beans. She was angry with Jack and took the beans from Jack and threw them out the window and said, you foolish boy, you've sold the only possession we had and didn't do what I told you to do. Jack went to bed that night without dinner. And when he awoke, to his amazement, there was a beanstalk, a large plant called a beanstalk that had grown and ascended into heaven. And so later that morning, Jack climbed the beanstalk only to discover in the clouds a kingdom that was inhabited by a giant and his wife. Now, you'll need to ask your mom or dad about the rest of the story, because Jack did some things in that kingdom that I couldn't affirm, and neither would they. But at the end of the story, Jack does something 
that this passage calls us to do. Jack cuts down the beanstalk because the giant that was climbing down the beanstalk was coming to get him. God strikes Egypt ten decisive times, leveling their beanstalks and humbling their kingdoms so that they would do something to up to this point they have been unwilling to do. Worship the Lord God for his glory and majesty and turn from worshiping the gods of Egypt and their king. Let's look at the passage together. Chapter 9 introduces us to three more of the plagues. We've looked at, I believe, four so far. The fifth plague follows a familiar pattern. It's a plague on the livestock of Egypt. And through this plague, the Lord God demonstrates, and this is my first point, his praiseworthiness over Pharaoh and idolatry. The chapter begins with the Lord once again demanding through Moses, his ambassador of Pharaoh to verse one, let my people go that they may serve me. And in this opening paragraph, the Lord says to Pharaoh, but I will make a gracious distinction in your land that tomorrow, when the hand of the Lord, verse 2, will fall upon your livestock with a very severe livestock, the livestock of Israel, verse 4, none shall die. And like the plagues prior to this and the response by Pharaoh, verse 7, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he would not let the people go. Two points as we look again at a familiar And it's really true of all the plagues as we work through this story, this true story together. The plague itself of a pestilence against livestock was miraculous. Moses was able to warn Pharaoh and make the prediction that he did because the Lord's hand in levying this plague, it is a miraculous demonstration of his power and glory. Secondly, the plague is miraculous because each of God's chosen people are protected during it and provided through it. That distinction is miraculous. And certainly, 
it caught the attention not only of Egypt and Pharaoh, their king, but of God's people, the enslaved Jews. Verse 6 is emphatic. All the livestock of the Egyptians died. All. And not one of the animals in Goshen died. Literally, one Hebrew scholar rendered this, not so much as one cow died. And herein we see again the purpose of the plagues. This is what God is doing through all of these ten dreadful judgments against Egypt and their king. He is saving his people. He is saving his people for his glory that they might worship him. Or, as I said in point one, the Lord God sent plagues against Egypt to demonstrate his praiseworthiness over Pharaoh and their idolatry. What was the Lord accomplishing through the plagues? He was saving his people by delivering them from their bondage to slavery for his glory that we might worship him. How? Well, in this plague, God's hand was stronger. Ancient Egyptian texts often referred to Pharaoh referencing his hand, the strong hand of Pharaoh, particularly in military conquests. So Moses, albeit inspired, but also a gifted storyteller, repeats this image of the strong hand of God to say to both us, the readers, and to his people when they receive this story that the Lord God's power and glory was greater than Pharaoh's might and Egypt's gods. But it also shows that Pharaoh's gods were weaker. Many of the Egyptian gods and goddesses were depicted as livestock. So in striking the livestock, they had a visual, albeit graphic, demonstration that the gods they had put their hope in lay dead in the carcasses of those animals. Not to mention... Pharaoh and the Egyptians depended on livestock for their livelihood. So their livelihood not only was disrupted, but it, I think the language I heard earlier lied in rubble. The Lord God sent the plagues against Egypt to demonstrate his praiseworthiness over Pharaoh and their idolatry because his people and Christians today were saved for God's glory that we might worship him. Let's look at the next plague. The sixth plague. 
the plague of boils. This sounds horrible. As horrible as dead livestock would be, the physical suffering associated with someone getting a boil would have to arrest their attention. Beginning in verse 8, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become dust over all the land, verse 9, and become boils on man and beast throughout all the land. So Moses and Aaron took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw it in the air and it became boils, breaking out in sores. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because the boils came upon them and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them. Again, a miraculous judgment boils through Moses and Aaron scooping black soot from furnaces and tossing it into the air. Miraculous in its effects as the dust of the kilns caused boils to break out on the Egyptians, on all the Egyptians, verse 11. And yet, miraculous protection. For while Egypt was plagued, Israel was protected. As I looked at this, familiar as I was with this, I was struck by the fact that several scholars pointed out that the kilns where the soot came from were the fire pit used to make the bricks for Pharaoh's buildings to which they were enslaved to build. So it was as if God was not only judging Pharaoh and Egypt for their enslavement of Israel and not letting them go. But the outbreaks of these miraculous boils, painful as they must have been, was an expression of God's justice on behalf of his people as he used the very instruments of their enslavement to afflict the Egyptians that they would let the slaves go. But perhaps what struck me the most is that this plague is the last plague where the magicians, those practitioners of the dark arts that were advisors and members of Pharaoh's royal court, are brought face to face with their complete helplessness because they themselves, it says, are afflicted by the sores and the pain breaking out on their skin is so much that they could not even stand before Moses. So we go from hardship through the pestilence that afflicted Egypt's livestock to hopelessness by some magicians that cannot heal 
Pharaoh and his people. Their defeat was complete. The book of Exodus will never mention them again. And yet, tragically, even in the face of hardship and hopelessness, Pharaoh's response is the same. He will not listen to the Lord. Now, it is true. Scripture will mention, and this passage highlights it, that God hardened his heart even as Pharaoh chose to disobey the words of the Lord. And God is sovereign in his demonstration of these miraculous judgments to rescue his people and as well righteous in his justice when he afflicts the Egyptians through the instruments of their enslavement of Israel. But what I want to draw our attention to is that this passage highlights yet again that the power of God, even when it is visibly demonstrated to someone such as Pharaoh, is not sufficient to change the heart of Pharaoh that he will worship what is true. We need something more. We need something more. We live in a culture that is absolutely convinced that if I can see it with my eyes or at least on my phone, it must be real. But in this passage, what Pharaoh sees and what Egyptian experiences is not sufficient to cause them to humble themselves and turn to the living God, the Lord God, and be saved from his judgments. What more must be needed? What more is needed in the heart of our lives to demonstrate God's praiseworthiness so that we will rightly worship him? And the answer, of course, is Jesus, which is my second point. The death and resurrection of Christ demonstrates God's praiseworthy power over sin and death. The death and resurrection of Christ demonstrates God's praiseworthy power over hardship and hopelessness to a heart that is willing to humble itself before him. And he'll use the rubble of the seventh plague to teach us all how to believe it. The last plague we'll look at today, the seventh plague of hail. And as we look at this plague, I'd like you to ask again the question, not only what is the purpose of the plagues in the purpose of God in the rescue of his people as we find in Scripture, but how does this plague, this plague of hail, point me again today to my need for Christ? 
in order that I might be saved for God's glory, that we might worship him. How does the hail that rains down from heaven on Egypt point me, point us, point people to our need for Christ in order that we might be saved for God's glory and might worship him? I think the answer will surprise you. It surprised me. And it's found in Pharaoh's false confession of sin. Let's look at the plague, what happened. It's the worst hailstorm ever. I don't know anything about Egyptian weather patterns. Meteorology and... But hail in a barren setting like Egypt, that sounds like trouble, doesn't it? Here in New England, I'm getting used to, or at least used to, weather patterns that, that are a little harsher than what I grew up with. I've learned to adjust to that and, and look forward to that in some cases and, uh, and be shaped by that. But, but hail in Egypt, that seems uncharacteristically crazy. And so when I read in the passage that this was the worst hailstorm ever that befell Egypt, my question is, when was the last hailstorm in Egypt? And was Weather Channel reporting on it then too? But it was an awesome storm that the Egyptians had never seen anything like it. Verse 25 says, throughout Egypt, hail struck everything. It beat down everything. It stripped every tree. It was an awesome storm. In fact, Moses goes so far as to give us three purpose statements, which we won't look at all of them, but to emphasize and illuminate not just the severity of the destruction, but why the Lord God was raining hail on Egypt. Verse 13, For this time, God says, I will send all my plagues on you and on your servants so that, here it is, you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. That's worship. No one like me. Verse 16. For this purpose, Pharaoh, I have raised you up to show you my power that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That's worship again. His name. Verse 29. The thunder will stop. There will be no more hail so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. That's worship. God's big and omnipotent. The plagues are a supernatural demonstration of God's purpose in your life and mine, which I often forget. That he would be worshipped above all. And I would repent and turn away and humble myself from all the false substitutes, even as a Christian, that I am tempted to worship. How is this plague the worst 
hailstorm ever. It's the worst hailstorm ever. Because Pharaoh is seeing his entire nation reduced to rubble. And he fails to yield to the grace of God offered him by Moses. He says, he calls Moses, verse 27, the Lord is in the right. This sounds promising. I have sinned. I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. I remember saying similar things to my parent when I got caught breaking the rules. You're right, mom and dad. I shouldn't have changed my report card. And where it said a D, write in a B and have you sign it. You're right, mom and dad. I shouldn't have said that I got home at midnight when I got home at two and you heard the horn honk when I pulled in. You're right. I was wrong. How does Pharaoh say it? Have mercy, mom and dad. Plead with the Lord. And say to him, let my people go. I think Moses, although compassionate, in that he goes out of the city, it says, and stretches out his hands and prays that there would be no more hail, he knows that Pharaoh's heart is not right. Verse 30, but as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. Wait, Pharaoh's saying he was wrong. He used the word sin, even his theology is improving. And he uses the Lord's name, Lord. He's even getting the basic categories in Hebrew catechism or whatever they do with the little ones. I and my people are wrong. But when Pharaoh saw, verse 34, that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. When I was young and visiting my grandfather in Jersey Shore, Pennsylvania, not Jersey Shore, New Jersey. Jersey Shore, Pennsylvania. There is such a place. If you've ever bought a Woolrich shirt, it's made very near Jersey Shore, Pennsylvania. My grandfather owned a two-story building, built as it was next to the Susquehanna River. In the lower level was his optometrist office. He was the optometrist for Jersey Shore. In another part of the lower level, there was a barber shop where Brownie, what a great name for a barber, Brownie, his best friend, would cut hair, and Dr. Bauer would go downstairs and hang out with Brownie and talk about the Nittany Lions. They were really big Nittany Lions fans. That's college football. And they were baseball fans, of course. And then Hurricane Agnes came through in 1973. And it not only overflew the banks of the Susquehanna River, it went all the way up to the second floor. 
and they lost everything in the lower floor. They would later rebuild it. The barber shop came back. Dr. Bauer's office now is on the second floor. But he never had the walls painted over. The stain of the floodwaters remained, which I found was a little tasteless in terms of decorating. And so we asked Dr. Bauer one morning while he was dipping his sugar powder donuts in his coffee like he would do, Papa, why don't you, why don't you paint over the, why don't you replace the wallpaper? He says, I never want to forget, and this always remember me, that when the great flood of Agnes came, we weren't ready. We weren't prepared. Now we are. Pharaoh failed to pay attention to God's word. And when Moses, the prophet of God, said to him, Pharaoh, humble yourself and let God's people go so that they may worship him. He did something which far too often we can do when we believe that the only, if you will, safe way to respond to God and his immutable holiness is to confess our sins to him without truly repenting of what we've said or done and asking for a heart that genuinely fears him. Last point, a confession of sin that acknowledges sin without fearing God is a false confession that falls short of true repentance and praise of him. A confession that like Pharaoh's says to the Lord, I have sinned, but without fearing the Lord, without humbling oneself to the Lord, without turning and, and, and putting one's trust and swearing allegiance and surrendering to Him, a confession of sin that acknowledges sin without fearing God falls short of true repentance and praise of Him. Pharaoh did not confess all of his sins because there was no genuine fear of God. Pharaoh did not turn away from all of his sins because his heart does not fear the Lord. And so one of the differences between feeling guilty and getting caught and true repentance is that a new heart, a change of heart, a heart that fears the Lord produces a true confession and praise of Him. We were saved for God's glory that we might worship Him. And the death and resurrection of Christ demonstrates His praiseworthiness over sin and death for the forgiveness of our sins. But in order to receive what He has done, we must not only confess to Him what we have done has offended Him, but we need to say to Him, Lord, give me a new heart. A true heart. A genuine heart. 
that loves you and lives for your glory. I had a conversation recently on one of those, and I'm closing, one of those Zoom high school reunion things. After the call was over, with a brother who came to faith in Christ when I did in high school. And then we got to college. So he went to Radnor, or he went to Harrington, I went to Radnor, public schools both. And then he decided to depart, sort of took a detour. He still went to church. We went to an evangelical Presbyterian church. Was part of a campus group, a good campus group, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. But his heart was far from the Lord. He was doing all the right things. He was saying what you need to say at the meeting. But either he had forgotten what he believed or he fell into the trap of believing that a confession of sin that acknowledges sin without fearing God falls short of a true confession that restores us fully to him. What turned you back? What brought you home? There were plagues. There were career disappointments and disasters. And there was his marriage that was falling apart. And God in his mercy brought this brother, a Christian man, who reminded him that to be a Christian means we understand that we were saved for God's glory, that we might worship him. Amen? And so when he brings hardships, it's not to punish us, but it's to remind us that we need a new heart, that we would genuinely always worship Him, not just when it's sunny on the outside. When we're confronted with hopelessness, like the magicians and the things that we relied on to heal ourselves before, fall short. Oh, we need a new heart, don't we? that is rooted in the reality that we were saved for God's glory, that we might worship Him. So yes, we confess our sins, and then we say, Lord, give me a heart, a right heart, that I might worship You. When we are confronted, as Pharaoh was, with the destruction of everything around him, we need a new heart that graces us with humility. That when we hear the word of the Lord, we say to him, I was saved for your glory. Help me. Help me that I might worship you. That brother's walking with the Lord now. He's been restored. The gospel is good news even for Christians that drift. Because Jesus is the only one that can not only save us from our sin... Jesus is the only one, friend, that can give you a genuine heart 
that desires to worship him. He's the only one. When I graduated from, I think, elementary school, Granny Evans came from Stoutland, Missouri. I loved Flossie. You know, she's one of those grandmothers who, because of the fluffiness of her arms, you could like to make a pillow out of her arm on those long trips. I love Flossie. Married what she thought was a Christian man in a small town in Missouri, and he turned out to be awful. Wealthy, but mean. Mistreated their boys, one of which was my dad. Left the family. In a small town, you can imagine the scandal and embarrassment of that. And consumed alcohol. Recklessly. For many Christians, that's enough for them to walk away from God, isn't it? But not Flossie. Mm-mm. Because she read her Bible. It was open. And she was in Methodist Church. And they were preaching Christ. And she held tenaciously to the promise that your word is a lamp to my path. And Jesus, you are my light. And those who follow you will never walk in the darkness. So there she is, giving me, her reckless, rebellious grandson, a Bible when he's graduating from, like, elementary school? I never opened it. I refused to read it. You know why? Because I needed a new heart. I needed someone to explain to me the gospel years later that said, you, me, Jesus came to give us a heart that will genuinely worship God and read his Bible because it's true. How? Through confessing all of our sins and declaring, Lord, the reason you died and rose again was for this purpose alone, for you to be glorified that we might worship and live every day. Only Jesus can save you and I from our sin, and only Jesus can give us a true heart. A heart that fears the Lord to genuinely worship Him. May God use the hardships and hopelessnesses and humblings of our lives, even when we're brought face to face with our rubbles, to see our need, even if we profess to be a Christian. For a Savior would not only die that we would not experience the wrath of God, but would give us a heart that can worship Him for His glory. Friends, where are you today? And where am I? Is my confession of sin today praiseworthy? Demonstrating that His power alone over sin and death is worthy of my everything. Or is it a Pharaoh-like confession that falls short and does not render him the praise or the glory to him? May God give us the grace to do just that. Let's pray. Lord, like the Israelites of old, we Christians were saved for your glory that we might live our lives 
and sing songs to bring you glory. And yet we need your mercy and your grace, Lord, as you showed it to Pharaoh, the magicians and the Egyptians, to not only acknowledge your majesty and your glory, your sovereignty and your your immutable and changing holiness. We need your mercy, Lord, to confess our sins and receive from you a heart, a heart that longs to live for him. So I pray, Lord Jesus, take this passage and this story and, and weave it into the details of our lives. For we were saved for your glory. Bring us to a place, a fresh place, a gracious place of truly worshiping you all our days. And all God's people said, Amen.